you are acknowledged as the master of the hit single. So, what what by we're trying? Whom? Well, I, I... By, by anybody with ears, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you first get a song, or when you write a song, or when you first choose a song, how it goes from from just being a raw demo or a raw song to the process of how you arrange it. When I either write a song that I'm particularly happy with or would hear a, a demo, say in years past, of, of some of the ones that went on to be uh, big hits, uh, the, the ones that are really, for the most part, the ones that become the, the biggest are the ones that are easiest to both write and arrange because all is right with the world, if you will. It, it just brings out the best in, in an arranger. I imagine most would tell you the same thing. Uh, so I'll go as an example to a demo of uh, Rainy Days and Mondays that came in. And an arranger, a lot of times, will use uh, obviously part of the, the motif, whether it's in the bridge or a chorus or a verse uh, to use as part of the intro, if indeed it's going to be that type of intro. Uh, Yesterday Once More has a, a, both a melodic verse and chorus, and yet all I heard for that was the which is certainly not one of my uh, more creative intros, but that's exactly the way I felt that song should have begun. Uh, Hurting each other was a cold opening. Uh, but getting back to rainy days, I, I listened to the demo, and back then, this would have been 19, uh, late 1970, early 71, uh, a lot, if not most of the demos, weren't grandly produced the way some of the later ones have been. Uh, because the song would speak for itself. So at most, Rainy Days had uh, like a rhythm track. And then I, I believe since Paul Williams wrote the lyric to Roger Nichols' melody, it was uh, Paul singing the melody. And that was it, the same as it was with We've Only Just Begun. And I heard the song once, it was uh, shopped to me in a, in a stack of demos, and, and uh, the hanging around part it was enough to stick with me to to warrant a second listing. And then I listened again and I realized that uh, the song for Karen and me had some potential. When I put the, uh, almost immediately I heard, because it has a bit of a, a plaintive melody in, in spots, uh, the, the minor part, and I heard the harmonica, both introducing, the, I, I say, I, I picked up the intro with what I considered the hook, if you will. It's not really a chorus song. It's an A-A-B-A, -A, a verse, verse, bridge verse song, but it has that little hook, even though it's not a, a chorus of the, the hanging around. The and that's the first thing that caught my ears, I just mentioned, so I figured that's the way to start. That'll get people's attention. And, uh, you know, even if it didn't, that's the way I thought it should start. <laughs> And, and started very, uh, almost sparsely, just with piano and harmonica, and well, that's how we did it. Through the years, a lot of arrangements that would get to me would be ones that would start, if it were a vocal record, with the, uh, the rhythm and vocal, and then a string pad, let's say, would come in the second verse, or uh, halfway through the, the first, depending on the structure of the song, and that always got to me. And, so I used a lot of that in my arrangements. So Rainy Days, again, is a, uh, an example where you start with just, well, it was harmonica and piano, and then Karen and the piano, and then the tom fill, and, and then bass and drums and strings came in. And then you start adding to it a little uh, counter line with the, the harmonica, and then you build from there. Let's talk about, I mean, the choice of key. Would that be something because you knew her range so well that you immediately knew exactly what key, or did you get together with her and work it out, and maybe it would be higher or lower than you thought? Or Every third blue moon, uh, we would change by usually a half tone the key I had chosen 
for Karen to sing and because I knew her range and I can picture her singing then and now so easily that I, I just picked the key and do the chart. I didn't need to, uh, to consult with Karen. Of course, I'd get her either a copy of the demo or for my own song, uh, uh, a tape of, of uh, me singing it so she could learn it, obviously. But uh, no, the key, I, I just knew what the key would be. Uh, in the choice of um, one of the things that is very uh, uh, obvious about your arrangements, a particular trademark, is your counter lines and as we talked about, the, either a harmonica melody, but especially the oboe seems to be uh, an instrument you chose to use a lot, uh, even two oboes once, uh, that I can think of. Uh, it, this, the timbre of the oboe seems to be very related to the timbre of her voice. Was that one I, of the reasons why you chose that? Uh, I guess in, intuitively uh, I did choose uh, the double reed instruments, uh, primarily English horn or core and uh, oboe, because they work so well with certain uh, tunes. I, I'd grown up listening to a lot of uh, the romantic Russian music, Borodin and Tchaikovsky and Rimsky-Korsakov, and the oboe always, uh, when played properly, uh, really elicited a response in me. And it, it does have, uh, depending on the, the tune and the mode, uh, really, uh, as you pointed out, uh, very much a quality, uh, if not in timbre, in, in, in just an emotive response that Karen uh, possessed. The technical side of recording your ideas has changed through the years, but the records were very sophisticated. And I would guess that at the beginning of your, your recording career, were you working with 8-track? 16 or what was it? As far as tracks and recording, uh, it, it just so happened that there are all these introductions it's, uh, of different formats, at least uh, more tracks, I shouldn't say exactly different formats, that uh, went along with uh, uh, Karen's and my uh, beginning and then all the way through our career. Our, our, uh, our demos in Joe Osborne's studio, which was very nice, by the way, a garage studio we had, it was four tracks. When we signed with A&M in 1969, they had just gotten 8-track. And, uh, or recently, I shouldn't say just, they had recently gotten 8-track. This was early 1969, and we thought that was the end of the world, I'll tell you. And we did our first album offering on 8-track. Uh, by the time we get in to start doing Close to You in early 1970, it's 16-track. <laughs> and then, let me think about this. Uh, well, then by the time we came in, well, two albums later, they'd gotten Dolby. Uh, and actually it was 16 from 70, 71, 72, 73, right around in, ooh boy, 73 or 4. Uh, and I'm getting rusty here. Oh, by the time we got in and did Postman, and some, it was 24. Well, and now, of course, it's, it's too many. I, I think if you can't make a decent record, uh, even with 24, come on. <laughs> so, yeah. One of the reasons I ask is because uh, another trademark, obviously, of, of the Carpenter's sound is the multi-track vocals. Now, one of the questions I need to ask is, how many tracks actually were there, and, and how did you record them? In other words, what it sounds like to me, and you can tell me if I'm right from just listening, it sounds like you do four-part harmony generally, and that you take two different lines and sing them and then two different lines and sing them and track each of those. Is that what you That's did? That's right. Yeah, very, very good. It's uh, Thank the, you. the average <laughs> carpenter chord, let's say the end of close to you, uh, is four parts. Now, getting back to what we were talking about with fewer tracks, uh, it did necessitate, which in a way I think was a good thing, our not singing them one part at a time. When we did the four-track demos, and I was hearing things like the end of Don't Be Afraid to Love, which uh, ended with... On four-track, obviously, it was a lot of ping-ponging. And, and Joe was really learning how to do this uh, uh, right at the time. <laughs> and, uh, of course, you get more 
tape hiss when you start doing all that ping-ponging, but the, effort, the, the result was well worth it. So by the time we were getting to, well, there's a load on that first album, too, and we finally did, you ping-pong. But to answer your question, say by the time we were working with 16, from 70 to 73, let's say, uh, Karen and I would go out and do what we call BG1, which is background one. And that would be the outer parts. I'd sing her the parts, or we had a little a Wurlitzer electric piano, and I'd play the part in the, in the booth. Or the Steinway was out in the room, and I'd play the part. In, in this instance, she would have been... And I took... So... Well, and then we'd sing them together into the 87. And we'd listen back, and when we got it just the way we wanted it, and that wasn't the way we wanted it. When we listened back, I said, that's absolutely perfect, because when you go to overdub, we don't want any rubs anywhere. Well, she and I never talked about this, because we thought it was the way everyone did it. We did not want to hear what we had just done back in our, in our cans. Later, we found out that anyone else who did overdubbing, they, they couldn't believe that we, but both Karen and I, we really found it disconcerting if we heard what we just did. Uh, so he said, and the engineer couldn't get it. He said, you don't want to hear back what you said? No, 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 we know what we just did, and that's the way it's supposed to go. We know where it attacks. We know where it releases. We know the whole, uh, the notes and, and, and the, uh, the philosophy. So, you know, if we do it properly, it will double perfectly. And when we did it properly, it would. And earlier on, so then it's another track, of course, so that's two tracks. And back then, we tripled. And we found out through the years, you really don't need to do the triple. But we tripled. So three of, so that's three tracks. Now, again, by the time you're recording all these different instruments, whether it's all the, the tracks for the drums, and you see, we didn't do stereo piano then because of lack of tracks, much to my chagrin. Mono piano, didn't like that. But uh, by the time you're going to put on guitars or whatever else, percussion and strings and horns, you have to start. So we'd get done, you have to start combining. You'd get done with, say, your three tracks of BG1 and the engineer. You'd get the balance with all three, and then you'd bounce those three over to a fourth, thereby opening up two tracks. Then you'd go do BG2. So it's been a long time since I've done this. Oh, boy. So, that's BG2. It's not particularly melodic, you know. And you do that. Yeah, that's it. Of course, the use of seconds is very much a trademark of, of, of your harmony. Well, that's what really gives it the fat, is, is the seconds. Because if you get like the Ooh Babies and Superstar, it's a lovely sound, but... just one second and when it goes but then it's three again so yeah the second really fattens it up uh, and that's what we do so you do three of those and, and you'd end up with two tracks for your for your backgrounds if indeed you were just doing a four-part chord which in fact were six were were six tracks because you had six oh yeah it ends yeah. up being 12. Am I doing the math right 12 here? Twelve vocals, I yeah, guess. 12, yeah. Uh... yeah. One of the things that I would say about your arrangements is that even if there were no lyrics, the arrangements have so much drama and dynamics, use of surprise, dynamics, all of these elements, that they tell the story of the song. How much... Uh, would you agree with that? And also, how much do the lyrics affect the way that you did that? A lyric, of course, is very important uh, to, I should say, when the combination, in my mind, of the right melody and the right lyric is happening, uh, it's greater than the sum of its parts. I know it's such an overused word to say this energy is synergistic, so I won't. Uh, it's just greater than the sum of its parts. But actually, the first thing I listen to when I uh, would audition tunes is the melody. And... Uh, and of course, when John Bettis was sitting with me, the first thing he'd listen to, of course, was the lyrics. But uh, uh, to answer your question, I, I, the, the lyric didn't play that much of a, a role in, in my arrangements because it's really the, 
the whole structure of the song, the melody, the chord changes, the mode, and all of that. In terms of uh, making hit singles, one of the things that you don't want is for the audience to be bored. So with your arrangements, there was never a dull moment. And, and also, because of the use of surprise, I mean, is that what you were thinking of? This has got to be three minutes of getting on the radio and catching people's attention. Because so, you had things like, for instance, bringing in the wah thing at the end and, and, and just surprising things and use of terrace dynamics where you'd have something, you know, you have really loud and then you come down to really soft. Was that what was in your mind when you were making those? Well, I, I think just instinctively, uh, it, it was, I didn't think these things through to that degree. It was pretty much, first off, uh, again, whether it was an original song by, by me or one that I was auditioning, is it right for the Carpenters? Is it right, or not in this order, is it right for Karen? Is it right for the Carpenters? And is it an album cut or a single? That, that's the first and fo foremost, uh, is it, well, all of those, and, and then, well, then the arrangement, and uh, it's just, I, I would hear it come out a certain way, and then years later, people who actually understood record making and, and the, 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 really the fine art of making a, we call them three minutes, and some of them were, but four at the most, with rare exception, uh, it is an art. You have three minutes, if you will, and we've only just begun with three minutes and four seconds and, oh my, Merry Christmas, darling, and, and uh, boy, Postman was two and a half and for all we know wasn't much longer. And you say, look at how much went into that three minutes. And it was not just us, there's any number of hit records back then. That's really, a, it's an art. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not just in the songwriter, but in the arranger and, and all involved for that little bit of time to have so much impact on people. I mean, if indeed you do end up with a great song and a, and a great record, it does. And it has an impact on them for the rest of their lives. They'll always remember, uh, for, for good or ill, you know, but usually good. I still get letters from people can remember the first time, especially I heard close to you, because the whole sound was new to them and just the impact it had on them. And, you know, it's really something. But I always made it point to add little things. Like in Superstar, it has the re-intro. I took the motif the long ago and put it in with the oboe, so. And then bend it around a little. And then the horn thing. And the bit. But when it comes in, because Superstar in so many ways is a very special song. And just the, the minor to the major, the melodic sweep, and the form, it's just different. So when it comes in for, because you usually don't get too many chances at a re-intro in the middle of your three and a half minute record, and it comes back in. So it's pretty much a repeat, but I, think I have to add something. So on the Wurlitzer, it echoes the motif. You have the, the oboe, but right behind it, the Wurlitzer is going da-da-da, echoing it. Dee-da-da-da-da-da. just to add a little something to it. Indeed. On Close to You, when I was putting the chart together at Herb Alpert's request, it gets to the end of it, you know, just like, and I suppose it could have ended like, and I'm thinking, hmm. And then I thought back to the end of Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Out of nowhere comes that ba-da-ba-bum-bum-ba-da. And that was always a very, so I thought, well, what the hell could I do here, you know? And, and of course, that came up with that bit. And, uh... and of course, that's another element of surprise, because I don't think anybody who heard that record for the first time ever was ready for it. And then every other time that they heard it, they were dying for it. They were just waiting for, for the it to end. come. Yeah, to enjoy it, it was definitely taking it on home. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and of course, the use of the anticipation was another, that was Karen's another surprise. Idea. Yeah, the push. That's that, on the third one. Karen's idea. Yeah. And she and you figured obviously you th you you decided to do that before you laid down the rhythm section when you were running it through with her. Is that? No, we were in there with uh, Hal Blaine on drums, 
Uh, Joe on bass, Joe Osborne, I was on piano. It was a bear of a track because it's very deliberate. And finally, we threw in the towel and said, all right, give us the click track. Because it was so easy to rush it, so easy. And, you know, we've had a number of people who really don't, our detractors through the years, who don't really understand uh, the type of music we're doing. And they would dismiss our stuff as easy or simple. And, of course, anyone who knows any better knows it's anything but simple. And, and Joe Osborne said it not too long ago. He said, uh, uh, well, you're a crap, he should say. After he was having a fit with, with this latest thing I wrote, he said, you're, you write shit so simple that no one can play it. <laughs> and, and, and of course, he knows all through the years, it's not simple. And boy, you hear some of the sound-alikes through the years on, on our stuff. Sounds like the Carpenters. Oh, boy. The one on Goodbye to Love, that was really a laugh. And, and close to you, they didn't even get... This voicing right, it, it, it was, this one in particular, it was really a hoot. So it, it's, it, it is, uh, anyone who does anything well, whether it's Sinatra or Como or Bing or Streisand or Karen or, or uh, an athlete, they make things look simple or sound simple. So the, the layman, oh, I can do that. And then boy, once you get into it, you just find <laughs> how difficult it is. Well, your music is highly sophisticated, and you showed as much as anybody could that sophistication can be highly commercial and, and appealing to the public. Now, I was going to ask you this later, but I, since you've talked about it, I mean, compared to today's general pop music, it seems that we're in a period of almost anti-sophistication. Would you agree with that? Just to, to stay on the point, we were just talking about if this is going in chronological order. I, I don't want to dismiss any pop record making as non-sophisticated or, 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 or simple because I know what goes into making almost any kind of a record. That being said, uh, I, I'm not very happy uh, with the state of, of pop music today and, and the records. It's more, and it is a, it's a talent, but it's, it's more of a of the producer's domain now than, to me, the writer or the artist. With all these machines that are available, the whole thing, well, that's the thing. It sounds like it's all being done, right down to the singers being done. The singers get put through Pro Tools or whatever to make them beyond humanly perfectly in tune, and, and it just doesn't sound right to me. It's not dynamic, it's not musical, and it could be that I'm 55 years old, uh, but it just doesn't sound like something that in 30 years people, but, you know, haven't we all been proven wrong before? Well, as, as, as a contrast to that, for instance, the way that you would take a song and cover it, you actually arranged it. You arranged the hell out of it and took it somewhere else than it was before. Ticket to Ride is a great example. Now, when you heard that song and you decided to arrange it that way, you today when they do covers, they're pretty much exactly as the original. But you really took that song to a different level. You want to talk a little bit about how you approached that? Lennon and McCartney's things always uh, impressed me from, well, from the first time I heard From Me to You, which over here was summer of 1963. They have a lot of melody. They have a lot of melody. Through the years, even before Karen and I were carpenters, we had the trio and all, and Karen was just starting to sing, and I'd ask her to do, uh, well, a number of things as ballads that I thought had melody. Uh, years and years and years ago, I'd done Handyman, way before uh, uh, James did it, because it came out and. 59, I think, and I thought, that's a pretty melody, you know, it can be slowed down. So we were doing Nowhere Man, and I Want to Hold Your Hand as a Ballad, and Rain, uh, and some others, and Ticket to Ride, by the time we signed with A&M, which is right around the time I came up with uh, this arrangement, it was early 69, was played as an oldie one day. I mean, obviously, we'd heard it uh, a thousand times in its original uh, go round, but for some reason, uh, that if you will, it, it hit me for the first time, and I thought, you know, that 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 could be, uh, and well, that's and as I put it together, which was pointed out to me years later by a, 
a chap who was doing an article for uh, Honor Rangers pointed out that, because I said, Conchi, I didn't do this stuff, I didn't think it through to such a degree uh, that I changed the melody and I changed some chord changes. So I changed that, uh, and I'm sure, certain uh, not everyone's happy about this, but if you, what is it? I think it's gorgeous. And I, I like the, the modality of that. And somehow, to me, it fits with the lyric, too. It's, it's certainly not a happy song. But then, and he don't care. It's out of tune, but love major sevens. And when I think through this now, that had the little tag on the end of it. It was kind of a, a precursor to the close you that think. And with the little, the descan horn, David Duke, and uh, it's really, it may be my favorite Carpenter single, it probably is. Uh, and you've got the seconds and the voicings again, oh, I of love course. The, so we, yeah, we got to do that. And when you went to do the overdub, of course BG1 was the sixth. But the, that was pretty routine. But then you put them together and you have. It's very interesting that you say that you chose to do the outside voices first and then the inner voices because you had a lot of seconds on the inner voices. Must have been, made it harder for you to sing than if you had chose the top two voices and, and the bottom two voices. That's absolutely right. I've never thought about that. But you In just all these years, I've never thought, but that seemed to be the logical way. Oh, yeah, and every now and again, Karen and I, of course, would be standing next to each other, and I have to do that. Uh, uh. And then, of course, now that I think about this, every now and again, the, the engineer would say, oh, no, 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 something doesn't sound right. And we said, no, no, it's, it's, when you put it all together, it'll work. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's, wow, yeah. I that's that's funny. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, usually that would have been the case, but I guess, I mean, you were inventing the territory, so. Let's talk about your working with musicians, because obviously you used a lot of soloists on the records, and you used them in a very, uh, uh, a very uh, descriptive way with the songs. For instance, the drum parts. Now, the drum parts are extremely melodic, if you will. They, they are, they're, they're very much a part of the track. I mean, you, you can't really hear the song without hearing some of those drum fills, and they, they were very interesting drum fills. Now, how much did you like, write them, or how much did you just say to Hal Blaine, for instance, fill there, big boy? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would write on, on the drum uh, parts. We'd write out a road map. Uh, it would have the the, the feel the, that I wanted, the rhythm as far as uh, the kick and the sock and where it went to ride. Uh, entrance, if it were a particular, where I absolutely heard it right to the fill, like rainy days, the, the going into the second verse, that would be notated. But usually fill was the same with Joe Osborne, uh, where I heard a bass fill or a drum fill. And we'd always, uh, we'd worked with different people through the years and, and for a number of reasons, settle on certain ones. Uh, well, then we'd, we'd know that they could come up pretty much with something way better than whatever, with rare exception, uh, than, than I could come up. So you'd put Phil to answer your question. For instance, uh, for all we know, the descending bass line, and well, it's not only descending, but sliding. Now that's well, really Well, see, cool. that's the thing. I wrote the descending. But Osborne's a genius, and, and, and uh, I knew that he'd just add to it. So it's not only the, the, the descending thing was, was written, and probably even the but it's beyond that. It's, then he'd syncopated some of them. Boom, boom, boom. And see, I wouldn't have thought of that at that time. Boom, 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 and then where to go? Boom, boom. I mean, Joe, you know, he, he's not a school musician, which, and to me, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's what you're born with. I, when I was a, a music major, we would have to study Bach chorales because it was really, 
It was the definition of the whole thing, of what four-part harmony is supposed to do. And I swear that if I ever took a book of those suckers and took out all the bass lines and put it in front of Joe Osborne, that he intuitively would play every damn note in the bass that Bach ever wrote. He just, uh, he's a genius. Well, he certainly proved it on that song. And, and, and I, I see with the musicians, whether it's Earl Dummler or Hal or Jim Gordon or Joe uh, or David Duke, we'd find people who, of course, you always had professionals when you were dealing with these top-notch studio musicians, but through the, the months and years, we'd run into ones who, who liked working with us so much that it went beyond uh, just getting there for their, their paycheck for their double, double scale. They really wanted to, to experiment some, like the little horn part at the end of uh, Ticket to Ride. Uh, I mean, David was really into that and uh, would work with us and say, well, how about this? Well, why don't you think about that? And, and uh, usually it was tough with me because I already had my mind made up as to how I wanted that final record to sound. But still, we really appreciated someone uh, not, not just putting in their time. And they obviously felt comfortable. with you, you made it clear to them that, hey, if you've got any ideas, it's okay to say them. It's a, I mean, because obviously some, some producers would give the impression that that wasn't very cool to do that. But you, well, you, they felt comfortable with you is what I'm saying. Yes, they do. And most of these folks we still work with when I, I work today after 33 years. Uh, same people because... <laughs> They're so damn good, and we all get along really well. Uh, it's a tough thing for a studio musician in a number of ways, because uh, you could be dealing with a, a producer uh, and or a ranger or and a ranger, and they run the gamut. Some uh, producers, they don't have anything. Sometimes they don't even have the whole song when the musicians get there, and they want to work it out, and if that's what floats their boat, that's fine. But I, that would drive me crazy not to know that I at least have 98% of the, of, the uh, of the arrangement ready uh, when, I, when all those folks come into that recording studio, even if it's one or two fellows. But, but some, and some really well-known ones, uh, they'd work on it right there. And sometimes, of course, the musicians would like that because the person didn't know exactly what he wanted for the chart. But sometimes, you can have some who, who don't know exactly, but know it when they hear it. You have other ones, and believe me, I've heard stories, who never know. It's like, try to sound like whatever's hot right now. Make it sound like that. And you try to tell them, we can't make it sound exactly like that, but they don't, they'll never know what they want. Then you have other ones, and I suppose I would be almost in that uh, classification, who know exactly what they want and don't want any changes. Now, I'm just a little more flexible than that because these folks really have a lot of good things to say. Sure. I mean, I always say to my guys, listen, if you can come up with something better than I've thought of and I can take credit for it, great. <laughs> uh, just a little bit. I mean, obviously, you know, the guitar solos were pretty famous. Um, how did those develop? They were overdubbed for one thing, were they? Oh, just, just about everything's overdubbed for two reasons. Uh, with rare exception, I would really work with as few people at a time a a as I could get away with. Uh, one was for the sound quality, because I don't like leakage of any sort. And another is that I can really zero in on that part and that part alone. Not be working, say, with the guitarist while five other people are in there filing their nails or, or whatever. I, I really like one thing at a time. So we would really do... On calling occupants, that was, for some reason, Joe couldn't get, uh, of course, he moved away from L.A. years ago, and either the plane was late or the scheduling or whatever, so Ron Tut and I, that was it. That was the beginning of that huge production, drums and Fender Rhodes. That was it. And then Joe went on, which is really something, because a lot of it's rubato, you know, but he went on later, and then the whole thing built from there. But usually it would have been bass, piano, and drums and then we'd add. We were on the road in 19, a lot, of course, in 1971, but for the spring tour, we had Mark Lindsay of Paul Revere and the Raiders uh, fame, well, and, and a couple on his own, open the show. He had a group backing him from L.A. here uh, called Instant Joy, and 
the leader was Tony Peluso. And we didn't think about it one way or the other, but one night, uh, probably the first night, the, we, we went out. We always want to see how everyone's sounding and being received and all that. So Karen and I, we went out and we had a listen. Of course, Mark's very good. The group is very good. But it gets to this one song, I can't remember the name of it, I think Peluso wrote it. And he lays in, and it was up-tempo, but he lays into this solo and, and it just knocked us out. I, I, I not only like the particular fuzz setting that he had, but it was melodic. It said something. It wasn't just a bunch of notes. So we'd make it a point almost every night to go up and, and hear that, uh, that song. And uh, well, and then that was it for that tour, and we went on to other things. And in the, uh, the months to come, I came up with uh, Goodbye to Love. And when it got, as I was putting it together, that uh, there's a four-part thing, on as best I can. Uh, well, I, I pictured this solo. And when I mentioned to, to a few people around us, I said, well, you know, Dean Parks, or you can get uh, Louis Shelton. They're all fine players, but I said, no, 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 no. There's, there's this kid. He's one much more than a kid. Of course, we weren't either, but a couple years younger than we, and, and uh, or at least than I. I think it was Karen's age. Uh, this guy can really play. So Karen, I think, got a hold of him. And it must have just it made him nervous as hell. And, and, uh, but he met us at Studio B at A&M Studios. And it uh, turns out, and I'm not talking out of school, uh, that uh, he, he doesn't read music. But doesn't mean anything to me. So, uh, and when you see these setups today, and what the guitarists can do. I mean, it looks like they have rolling studios with them. And back then, Bone shows up with his Gibson and this little amplifier and a big muff fuzz unit. That was it. And we gave him a chord sheet. And I said, I want the first couple of bars um, playing the melody. And I played him the melody a few times. He's very quick. We got it in two takes. The bulk of that solo is the first take, and then I edit it when it goes to the That's from the second take. And that was it. And as soon as he laid into it, I mean, I know we can pick it apart a little bit. It's a little bit sharp pitch-wise. Other than that, I, uh, I'm still amazed with it, and it's exactly what I had in mind. And of course, we asked him to join the group. And it was almost the beginning of the whole power lead. Uh, the, these big rhythm ballads with the power lead. Uh, if you think about it, we use very little guitar. Well, actually, even after that, very little. Uh, Superstar and Close to You and Rainy Days and Ticket. Now, well, later we added Bone when we remixed Ticket in 1973, and, and Karen redid her lead and redid her drums. But all those early records had no guitar at all on them. Uh, at that point in time, I just didn't hear that much of it in the arrangements. Let's talk a little bit about Calling Occupants, which you mentioned earlier. Now, obviously, that was a pretty epic uh, production. How did that develop? And I also noticed that you worked with another arranger on that. And how did that work, working together with somebody else? Calling Occupants came to my attention when Tony uh, Peluso mentioned this album that had come out that I'd seen ads for in Billboard and Cashbox, Klaatu, K-L-A-T-U, named after the alien in the 51 classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Turned out to be a, a group of a Canadian studio musicians who were big sci-fi buffs and Beatle buffs, and they put this thing together in their spare time, this album, and it's damn good. And they're really top-notch musicians. It was on Daffodil Records in Canada. It was picked up for release in the United States by Capitol. And since it's very Beatlesque, especially on, a, on several tracks, the ad campaign is, who is Klaatu? And uh, Bone said, you, you have to hear this thing. It's, it's a good rip. And, uh, and he said, there's this one called Calling Occupants. And he's talking about observing your earth. I thought, oh, this sounds like a who. So I, I pick it up. and. Well, I like the, just about the whole album, but that's the first thing on there. And I thought, because we were trying to, to do a few things 
a little bit differently on what became Passage, the 77 album. Well, let's do this. But I think for budgetary reasons, Klaatu did a lot of the orchestral things that they'd come up with with synthesizer. So I thought, oh, what the hell, you know, let's do it with the real thing. So we had a symphony orchestra and a full chorus, plus the overdubs. A return of Tony's DJ from the Now and Then album. The Apollonian, as, as was described by a, a critic, uh, guitar solo. The whole, it had everything in it. I was coerced, I should say, into making it a single. I never thought it was a single. I never wanted to edit it. And it did not do that well here. But it did, as you know, very well in the United, very well in the United Kingdom. And you know, we'd have records here, like we've only just begun, that were huge that didn't do that well in the United Kingdom. So you never can figure. Uh, I worked as we did on several other tracks uh, when it came to the orchestration with England's late great Peter Knight. For for certain things, well, he could do just about anything. But I, I, for certain things of ours, I, I I thought he could really do the the perfect job, and, and that was one of them. So you, how would you work with him? Would you guys get together and talk at the piano about mm -hmm. what you wanted, mm -hmm. and then he'd, he'd go away and... That's it. Yeah. Okay. That, that, well, that, well that, that was pretty much it, you know. I mentioned the marching band thing in, in the one section, but I'll tell you, that whole chromatic, that scale that he has on the calling on, near the end when it goes... That was all him, you know. That, that's what I'm saying. It's... You, you learn through the years, uh, you, you become familiar with the people you think uh, complement what you're doing uh, the best, and then you just let them go to it. There's that, uh, well, I guess you'd call them wrong notes towards the end, you know, on that section where, where you've got the, the, the de descending chords and that the same figure is on, on, on the top. Yeah. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. It reminds me of a, well, uh, an ambulance in the United Kingdom. You know that whole dissonant, uh, bee boo, bee boo. Great. It, it, well, it works perfectly for that, a crazy record. <laughs> it's a crazy record, and you know the parenthetical title to it is the the recognized anthem of World Contact Day, and we receive a all these letters, you know, like, when is World Contact Day? And I, I and, and you'd have to write them and say, hey, you know, it's uh, it's a song. Yes, yeah, next week. It, it's uh, it's coming in with the Hail Bop Comet. It, it's, uh, it's a song, you know? <laughs> but I was doing an interview once with a, with a major newspaper. It was to celebrate the release of the If I Were a Carpenter alternative set that came out for the 25th anniversary of our signing, and, and which would have been 94, and the fellow, and he really knew our music, and it was really a nice interview, and well, thanks very much, it was in the United Kingdom. And, uh, and then there's a, a bit of a pause at the end, he said, well, Richard, you know, he said, I've, you know, this was one more question, he said, uh, you know, and you know, I have to paraphrase it by now, but it was pretty much, well, tell me about World Contact Day, or when was World Contact Day? Uh, wow, I guess you know, we must have sold this thing pretty convincingly. So, but it was all done in fun, you know, even though it was a hell of a lot of work, that record, it, it, it was kind of a labor of love. Talking about working with other arrangers, you also worked with Ron Goro? Oh, Ron Goro, yeah, Ron uh, has the unenviable task, uh, since I loathe writing music, I mean literally writing music, of, well, <laughs> taking down what I ask him to write. So he writes down what I hear. So again, you'll just sit at the piano, he'll sit there with a piece of paper. That's it. And he'll... He he'll has great ears, so usually if I give him something, even for the rhythm track like this, the same way as I heard it off the Klaatu record, he hears it from me. We have these ears that we're able to hear this stuff. But then, I mean, it's right down to every note and the, the strings. Of course, the vocals, I would just either do myself or, or Karen is with me. I just, it was by rote. But the strings, you know, everything has to be written out. And then he'd write and I'd play the inner parts or whatever. And I said, no, wait a minute. You know, and of course, then he'd have to. He's a very patient man. We've been working together for 32 years. 
And thankfully, he still looks forward to working with me. <laughs> Very patient guy. Here's a kind of funny question. When you're working with Karen, you're working with somebody who actually sang the melody. Now, what would you do if you had to produce a record with Mariah Carey? Oh, it's not my style, Richard. I, I am really a traditionalist. So I have to listen as far out as I want a melody from the original would be what Frank Sinatra used to do. That's it. I pretty much want it like Perry and Karen and any number, because to me, if the melody's strong enough, it doesn't need all the gymnastics. That's just not my thing. So I can appreciate the talent of the Mariah Carey or Celine Dion or some of the Whitney Houston, but it's just not my cup of tea. I couldn't work with her, it, unless she would want to just sing. And I'd give her melody, if I didn't write it myself, I'd find something that's strong enough that doesn't need all that stuff. But I, that's just a matter of taste, so. Uh, well, I couldn't agree with you more, actually. That's why I asked the question. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, an arranger, I've always found, from the arranging that I do, that when you're dealing with a singer who's all over the place, obviously, there's no gaps. There's no, there's no space. So there's, a lot of your counterlines, for instance, would just be obliterated by all the improvising that's going on. No, I know it's frustrating to a couple who have worked with me when we did the Something in Your Eyes track with Dusty Springfield. I had the whole thing for the, out of the guitar solo into the modulation with all the background vocals that I had done. And when it builds, and rightly so, she said, well, wouldn't you like, like, something in your eyes, which is very pretty. And I said, oh, no, 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 Dusty, see, it's all, it's, everything was all. And I know our critics and my critics would say, you know, you're too, too, everything is too structured. You know, maybe something like that would be good, and they could very well be right. You know, but that's just the way I, I hear things. So it's very uh, formal. Nothing wrong with that. Just talking about how you take a song and take it somewhere else, um, we've only just begun, started life as a commercial, mm. and you turned it into an all-time classic. Can you take us through the process of how you first heard it and what you did with it? It was written by Paul Williams, we've only just begun, written by Paul Williams and Roger Nichols. Uh, I was familiar with Paul's voice. Uh, they're a very talented writing team. They uh, were with A&M's publishing arm. We knew them, knew their stuff. They hadn't had a hit. We figured it was a matter of time. They'd been hired to produce a commercial, bank commercial for the Crocker Bank. Soft sell showing a young couple getting married, driving off, and you know, the, the whole thing that the song was written for. Rice being thrown, kiss for luck, driving into the sunset. And at most, it had a voiceover at the end, and it may have just been the tag. You've only just begun. Let us help you get there been a long time, so I don't know if someone said something or not. Probably didn't. And uh, it got a lot of, of airtime because it was a good ad. Well, I mean, I heard it a couple of times, and I knew right off the bat it was uh, Paul. I know his voice. And there was a 60-second one and a 30-second one. One was one verse and one was two. By the time, either the first, second, third time at the most, I heard it, I thought, this thing's a hit. It's a hit. If, of course, it has a bridge and a third verse. And as Paul later said, if it hadn't had one, uh, being that Karen and I were interested in it, they would have written one. <laughs> but that didn't cross my mind at the time. So I saw him on the A&M lot and asked him about it. He said, oh yeah, yeah, it's a whole song. So I went over to the publishing and I got uh, an acetate at the time and, and played it and I heard the... I, I thought it was a little weak uh, going f uh, into the... Uh, it wasn't an A, but let's leave it an A, because that's where it, Because uh, it goes A, and then all of a sudden it was... Mm, I didn't like that, so I... But I love the bridge, and I love the together bit, and I knew that the second time we did together, we'd do... Uh, and I took it into the sound stage where we were set up, A&M, and, and I put together, so... To, to get a smoother transition into uh, the bridge, I, I did, well, it became, and then the whole thing. And that settled it. 
And, uh, oh, we thought that. You see, we're close to you, to me, even though as the record took shape, we thought it was really, really something. And people were breaking studio protocol, uh, pushing doors open to the booth to say, what is that? You know, they'd never heard anything like it. It still didn't stand up to us and say, hit, I'm a hit. We're, we've only just begun, did. So we came very close to, to holding back the release of Close to You to put out, we've only just begun. Was but, it uh, your idea to make the, uh, the bridge so funky? Yeah. And that, see, that's three minutes long, that record. It's really, it shows everything that we can do. Uh, because it, it has the vocals. Karen's great voice. Because a lot of people go to cover this thing and, and they take the breath. We've only just begun breath to live. And Karen, you know, 20 years old, she just did all this stuff instinctively. She took one breath and sang, we've only just begun to live. So all that. Well, and then it has even this because it's a little bit strange right there. Uh, you know, the end, yes, we've just begun. It's different than some songs. Uh, well, and so then when it builds, so I put the brass dabs, the Wurlitzer's doing, and then the, yeah. And then you bring it, goes little counter line that I don't think is high enough in the mix, you know. <laughs> so it really has, has a nice brass thing at the end, has a cold ending, which I like, because anytime I can get away from a fade, I'll do it. Yeah, that record has everything. It, it's really some, some song and record. What is it that you hate about fades? They're not natural. That's so in a, in a sense, overdubbing isn't natural. You know, I, I got into it once, and of course I am a bit of a hot-tempered sort and very, uh, very touchy. And uh, we were in Australia in 72 doing a tour over there, and we were in Sydney and we did the first show, and well, a number of interviews were set up, and this fellow uh, said, now there's something about us being, you're an electric band. I said, we're not an electric band. And he said, well, you are. I mean, it got in. I said, we are not an electric band. You know? <laughs> and I stormed out. Because <laughs> he said, well, look at you. You know, you're up there. Now, Tony wasn't even with us at the time. But I, I guess I know what he's talking about now. You know, we, we definitely, we, of course, we had a big a Steinway or a Baldwin or something up there. But you had your electric piano, an electric bass. So I guess that's what he meant. See, I was thinking more like, but in a sense, we were. In a sense. To this day, it seems odd the Carpenters being an electric band. But uh, in, in a sense, in the studio, we certainly were. Because uh, in a sense, electric, not electric guitars, obviously, but technical stuff, because we did all the, the, the and yet the piano and all, and Karen's lead and all that is as natural as can be. So it was actually, I guess, an amalgam. Did you find that manifesting the records live required a little bit of cleverness? It was difficult to do this live. The easiest part was the most important part, which was Karen's lead and my accompaniment. But then to get those vocals, we had uh, background uh, singers and musicians, both. And I mean, they were multifarious. And uh, they worked with us on the, the approach to the vocals and, and working the mic so we could get the best blend. But that being said, it wasn't overdubbed. It wasn't just Karen and me. And Karen and I would do that breathy thing every now and again, like the Waz, where you, ah, and Lord knows, it was rough enough to do in a studio. I mean, if you're on stage with 5, 10, 20,000 people, you're lucky to be able to hear properly at all, uh, never mind trying to get that airy sound. So it was an approximation. How many singers did you take with you? It would have been four altogether. It was Doug, who also uh, played some keyboard and clarinet, uh, Doug Strawn, and so he sang, and then Danny sang, and Karen and, and I sang, and that was it. So you got one, but every now and then, depending, like that sounded pretty good. Not really like the record, but it was all in tune and usually balanced. And 
But uh, this is a lot of fun. Because I, I don't get asked this stuff most of the time, you know. It's, well. And it's really a treat to have someone who actually has heard, hears this stuff. You yeah, know? well, it, uh, I'm, I'm glad. And, and you know, being, being an arranger all my life, you know, these are the things that influenced me. One, one quick question I wanted to ask, just if you, because you've listed some of the classical composers who influenced you, uh, were you influenced by any other pop arrangers before you got into the business? Oh, sure. Well, vocal-wise, uh, uh, the first was, uh, and Les himself said it was Mary who came up with all the parts, so I guess it would be Mary Ford. Because the first record of theirs I heard was Tiger Rag, not How High the Moon. I, I, and it, I don't know if you're familiar with the record. Okay, that's where I heard this bit, this, this right there. Because he's going, dun, 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 and she's going, ooh, wah, ooh, and that's, that's the voicing. And I would have been four or five, and that hit me. I had to have the record, and, uh, and then subsequent ones. I, I was just crazy about them. But just that right there, that ooh, wah, right there did it. Later, it would have been Hugo Winterhalter. I love the way, boy, and he doubled the top of the, the octaves, uh, like in The Man with the Banjo, and... And, and what he did with the vocals and that whole ethereal thing and bringing them in the second, and the whole in Canadian sunset, ooh, and then the, I may be in the wrong key, but that whole, see, he, he did what you're taught not to do, which is double your octaves, but, uh, and it works, you know, and, and and I know it's Eddie Haywood, as well, but uh, Winterhalter. Then, and it turns out that uh, Peter Knight actually started as a, a vocal arranger. There was a record that came out in 1956. I'm a Spike Jones fan. But this was half serious, if not three quarters serious, his, his Christmas album. And Spike always had uh, an ear for the finest talent. I mean, the city slickers, you couldn't get any more talented people than those guys. And he hired uh, the leading, or one of the leading, uh, vocal uh, fellows. He'd worked with Bing Crosby, Judd Conlon, the rhythm airs, and he put together this, and the voicings and all. When my parents bought me that, that album in 1956, I mean, Karen and I listened to it, though, and the family does to this day. We play it to death. Lovely arranging uh, of vocals. And of course, Stan Freeberg used him for Green Christmas and, and all of that, and, and uh, he was great. I never got a chance to meet him or tell him how much I thought of his work. But one night uh, when Peter was over here and we were working on something, either one of our television specials or occupants or something, we had dinner. We we're talking about how he got going. And actually, he started uh, as a vocal arranger, not an orchestral, and he said, oh, and he always thought David Rose, rightfully so, was the father of modern pop arranging, if you will, before Nelson and Billy, you know, David Rose. And, uh, and he said, and then vocally, he said, there was this fellow named Judd Conlon. And he said, that's what you went after, was Judd Conlon. I said, hey, Judd Conlon, you know, he, he's the guy. So that would be a lot of it for vocals. And then, of course, uh, the overdubbing thing you'd hear from time to time through the years, whether it's the Beach Boys or certain Beatles things or association or... Uh, the four pre uh, yeah, preps, uh, that could have been one of the first, other than actual groups, not Les and Mary, or Mary, with 26 Miles was uh, overdubbed. And I always loved that sound. So it was uh, a number of things. Uh, but yeah, certainly Winterhalter and uh, Bacharach, needless to say. And, but then a lot of the Russians, and it, it all kind of, and then certain jazz influences, it's, it's really uh, a hodgepodge. Yeah, certainly harmonically, there's a lot of jazz in the songs. I mean, voicings and, and, and harmonic progressions. And sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll throw in a harmonic progression, which is quite sophisticated, and then the second time you approach it, the second time you present it, it's, it's simpler, because you've already done that, and it's all like you've already told that story. And then the second time, you'll do it simpler as a change. Well, thank you. Fantastic. And... and uh... This is a great idea. Uh, I mean, the whole series on arrangers, because well, you know, I, they definitely are unsung heroes. I think so, and 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 I've always felt that uh, it was about time people saw their contribution. And I mean, of course, you're you're an artist 
arranger. Uh, but a lot of these guys, nobody knows their names, and yet they contributed a lot. So it can make or break the record. It certainly can. I mean, or the song. I mean, you can as you have a hit singer close to you, and of all people to miss it, but no one, no one's perfect. Of course, Bert missed close to you. Because usually he knew exactly what to do with his songs. So, I mean, that'll show you right there that the arrangement, because it was put out in 63 with Bert's arrangement and Dion. So, obviously, it's a hit song, it's a hit arranger, and it's a hit, a hit singer. But for some reason, he, he wasn't his usual perfect self. It's a nice arrangement, it's just not the right arrangement in, in my book. And, uh, so that'll show you right there that you can have the artist and the song, and if the arrangement isn't right. <laughs> <laughs> Great.